Okay, so let's um, let's go ahead and begin. And um, as is our custom, let me start us with a word of prayer. Our, our Heavenly Father, we ask our blessings upon us as we uh, peer uh, by the presence of Thy Spirit into the majesty of our redemption, the greatness of our God, uh, who uh, saves us at great cost and um, brings us into the family and the people of God. Um, and uh, bless us uh, uh, as we grow in our understanding of these great matters. Uh, for the glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen. So just a quick review. Uh, we started out with Scripture, um, and then uh, 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 we learned from Scripture that uh, God reveals Himself uh, in uh, in his word, particularly the way of salvation, uh, reveals himself in creation, uh, but creation doesn't tell us about salvation. That's in the scriptures. So it's, we, we, must have, we must have a high regard for scripture. And I would remind you that um, uh, a high regard for scripture it has been under attack, uh, as we should expect, but it's been under attack in the, in, 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 in the church for, uh, for decades. Uh, there are some de- uh, denominations that, that would deny the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, uh, but we, we, affirm, we affirm both of those. Uh, from Scripture, we graduated to the person of God, so we read... Uh, Arthur Pink, The Attributes of God. It's a very simple uh, introduction, uh, but certainly true. And uh, that, uh, that as well is always under attack, um, sadly, uh, even within the church. But I just want to remind you of something that's very critical. If you want to turn to the Gospel of John, I was reminded of this when I was in New Jersey because uh, walking along the beach, um, I, uh, I noticed that uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses had set up, you know, their tables. And, um, and then when I was in the friend of my home, two of them knocked on a door and wanted to engage us. Uh, so, so, so essentially what all of the cults do... Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, et cetera, et cetera, um, is they attack um, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. They attack uh, his, his divinity. And it's critical for you to understand that the moment you begin to subtract anything from the person of the Son, um, like uh, his attributes that we learned about, you are attacking the very essence of the Trinity, and once you deny the Trinity, you you really can't you really absent yourself from being Christian. Okay, you are other than Christian because uh, because the Trinity is uh, is essential for our salvation. So we're going to get into in our upcoming study um, redemption accomplished and applied. Um, so so just I just want to affirm from. From one chapter, of course, we could go everywhere, but I just want to affirm you understand the criticality of grasping 
that Father, Son, and Spirit uh, all have the same substance. So they are all God. Uh, we believe in Trinitarian Godhood, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, each one of them has the same substance. In other, one, in other words, each, each person of the Trinity is God. Uh, all the attributes that we studied in pink apply to each one, Father, Son, Spirit. You cannot subtract uh, without falling uh, into grievous error. So let's, let's affirm this from the Gospel of John. Um, John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the, fr- the prepositional phrase, in the beginning, uh, does anyone have any idea where, where, where that might have come from? That's exactly right. Genesis. Okay? It, it's critical for us to understand as Christians that the New Testament writers were steeped in the Old Testament. And they bring the Old Testament into the New. Okay? Um, the moment you, you begin to play with that, with that concept, um, namely that they were steeped in the Old Testament, and they, they either quote or allude to the Old Testament, uh, some people have said almost a third of the time in their writings in the New Testament. Well, that's a lot. If you attack that position, uh, you are essentially attacking um, a third, a third of the New Testament. Okay. So, in the beginning is is an allusion uh, to Genesis chapter one. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So stop and think about that. In the beginning was the Word. Well, we know the Word is Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. He was present at the creation. Uh, Some of the cults believe that Jesus was just a man. Man hadn't even been created in Genesis 1.1. So that's refuting that. Jesus was there. Okay, Uh, He participates in the creation. We also know Christ as the author of the new creation, uh, which is our salvation that will run its course until we enter the new heavens and new earth. Okay, So uh, uh, for, for John to say in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, is as clear an affirmation of the deity of Christ as there is. Okay, um, uh, If you look at verse 14, we have an affirmation of the Incarnation. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Christ, uh, Christ is one person. Okay, He's not two. He's one person, but He has two natures. Humanity and deity. Uh, I confronted this talking to these Jehovah's Witnesses because one of their arguments against Christ was uh, God can't die. What's well, true? The divinity of Christ did not die on the cross. Okay? Because God can't die. If God can die, then God is mutable. And we learn from pink, as well as the scriptures, that God is immutable. So what died on the cross? The humanity of Jesus. Exactly right. The humanity of Jesus died on the cross. Not just, not just divinity. Okay? Because God can't die. But you know, they just, they just gloss over these things. Um, but, but we can't. 
Have you, have you ever had Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door? Yes, that's what you're going to You're going to hear stuff like that. Uh, and the Word became flesh dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Glory, that belongs to God. Okay? As of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, um, obviously, uh, obviously his, his divinity. Um, John, is it John 10, 30, I and the Father are one? Uh, the word one is in, is in the neuter case. So I take that to be of one essence. Okay. Um, so again, the Son has the same essence. Um, John 14, 6, uh, no man can come to the Father but through me. So, so it's, it, it, it is a perilous journey uh, to begin to go down the road that Christ was just a man or that he was a man that became a God. I think that's an essential tenet of, of, uh, of uh, Mormonism. And, and if you're a Mormon, you too will become like a God. Uh, we don't become like gods. Uh, uh, we become glorified humanity. So, anyway, uh, just a quick review there. Uh, so let's let's turn now to redemption, accomplished and applied by John Murray. John Murray was a twentieth, uh, uh, pardon me, um, yeah, twentieth century theologian. I have to get my centuries correct. Um, uh, he comes from. Uh, the United Kingdom, comes to America, uh, studies at Princeton, becomes a professor there, um, and uh, obviously writes this book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. So he comes from the Reformed faith. I mean, he was, uh, he was um, um, uh, a, uh, a Presbyterian. Uh, which has his, which has its roots in uh, Reformed theology. Uh, uh, the uh, one of the de- uh, uh, Presbyterian denominations in in the United States, the PC USA, has has forsaken that road. Okay, uh, so PCA affirms it. Some of the other newer ones affirm it as well. But uh, the largest one, or was the largest one, I don't keep track of their numbers, but the PC, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, really has forsaken uh, their their reformed uh, roots. Um, so always try to remember things like that. So if I'm d- talking with someone that's a member of a PCUSA church, I try to witness to them. Okay. So um, I'm not saying they're not Christian, I, and I don't know, but I try to witness to them. Just to remind them of their of their roots that they they have left. Uh, most, uh, you know. By the way, when you witness about your faith, uh, most people do not have a clue what their churches really stand for. They're just there because they're there. Okay. Um, so, um, I just remind you of that because uh, I believe one of the great witness fields in America uh, are. Uh, is, pardon me, uh, is um, the professing church that has defected from the faith. Okay. That's why I've taken pains to, to connect you 
to something of our lineage, uh, Protestant Reformation, the Apostles, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, we need to know uh, what we believe, and that's one of the reasons for this class. So if you think of the title, it's very critical you understand the title, Redemption Accomplished. We're going to learn that Christ accomplished the totality of our redemption and salvation at the cross. Okay, uh, He finished the work that God the Father gave him to do. He accomplished everything that he came into the world to do. Uh, he failed at nothing. Okay. Uh, if you think about that in terms of one of the competing systems of theology, uh, semi-Pelagianism, or the Roman Catholic Church, uh, Arminianism, which uh, governs most evangelical churches, uh, they believe that you can uh, lose your faith. So, if you think about that statement, uh, Christ partially accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do, but not totally and fully. Uh, remember the words of John chapter 6, all that the Father has given me, I lose none. If he can lose, then he was partially successful on the cross. Okay. Now, of course, they dispute that. No, no, he was successful, but God gives it to our will. Uh, I always get very uncomfortable when you begin to refer to our will because I know our will, even though we're redeemed, still under the effects of the fall. Okay. Uh, our will is no longer dead as uh, the lost man uh, uh, has no spiritual life to come to God except God give him life. But still, our will is under the effects of the fall. Uh, I want to trust the will of the Father respecting my salvation. So Christ accomplished it. Everything. He sets everything in motion. And then the Spirit is dispatched to, think of the title, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. So none of us, uh, none of us were born Christian, even though Christ has saved us at the cross. The Spirit has to apply it. It's applied by the Spirit. The Spirit comes, convicts us, uh, uh, causes our will to be willing to turn to God. We hear the word, the gospel, in some manner or form, wherever, radio, read the Bible, a sermon, again, different. Uh, 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 the Spirit illumines our minds to those texts and uh, come to faith. Um, in the Reformed tradition, faith is a gift. Uh, Ephesians 2.8 uh Paul said it's a gift of God, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. So it's a gift. Gives us the gift of faith. We respond. We come to Christ. Uh, we, we, have, we have new life. Okay. So accomplished, applied. Son, spirit, working in total unity. Okay. And uh, unity not just between the spirit, the son, also unity with the father. Uh, the father wills. Uh, those uh, are going to be saved. The Son purchases them, loses none of them. The Spirit makes it happen. So that's that's the essence. That's a very condensed, very very condensed form of uh, of uh, Murray's Murray's book. Um, 
And again, all those things are coming under attack. Uh, uh, not in the secular world, in the Christian world. So, so uh, we begin chapter 1, the necessity of the atonement. Uh, Murray tells us that love is the cause and source of the atonement. Uh, and it is a love that elects and predestines. Okay. Uh, but given such love, uh, Murray asked the question, why are the incarnation and the passion necessary? So um, he's going to answer that question. He begins by, by speaking to hypothetical necessity. Uh, God, and, and, and what Murray means by this is God could have saved in any number of ways. But he chooses the cross. Hypothetical necessity. Murray rejects that. Uh, he affirms absolute necessity. Uh, it was not necessary that God save us because he owed us nothing. Adam, if you think about the fall that we studied, uh, Genesis 3, uh, Adam was our federal head. When he voted to sin, he brings condemnation on all of his progeny. Uh, God was not obligated to save Adam and Eve, which he did. Uh, not, uh, not obligated to save anyone. Uh, but choosing to save, uh, he was under the necessity to send his son. This is the importance of Trinity. Uh, and why was it necessary to send his son? Because of the perfections of the character of the son. Justice has been, think about it in this way. Uh, God is absolutely perfect. His perfection has been violated. How can that be cured? Only by perfection. The Son was perfect. So only a perfect eternal Son can cure the violation of the character of an infinitely perfect God. So, Sending the Son is an absolute necessity. Okay. Nothing hypothetical about it at all. Uh, and so Murray affirms it was, ne it was a necessity arising from the perfections of his nature. Okay. Uh, let's turn to a, a couple of texts. Uh, let's just turn to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2. By the way, these are all in your notes, so you don't... Uh, one of the reasons I produce these for you is just so to help you understand. It's A lot of people have difficulty uh, reading systematic theology, which that's what Murray essentially is. He's giving us a systematic theology uh, on salvation. Um, but uh, it's good to read him, struggle with it, to, uh, to get you ready to read uh, other things. So Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Okay? In other words, the son is going to have to pay the debt and he's going to suffer. His sufferings are eternal. Think about it this way. How can his sufferings be eternal? They lasted, well, let's just say throughout his life, but certainly they were intensified 
the last three days of his life. That's not eternal. Okay, so what is eternal? His person. <laughs> okay. If, if an eternal person suffers, okay, it's going to be eternal because he's an eternal person. Okay. So that makes sense? Look, uh, one sin violates the perfections of God. Okay? So one suffering by an eternal person can cure that eternal uh, injustice. So Christ, as an eternal person, uh, can perfect our salvation uh, because of who He is. If He was just a man, He can't do that. But as the eternal Son of God, He can. It's the majesty of the Son. The absolute majesty of the Son. This is the, uh, I mean, this is the uh, tragedy of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc., etc. So, um, um, and yet we should expect that because uh, the Bible tells us that God will flood uh, the world with deception in the end times. Okay, so the Bible tells us we should expect deception. And, and they're pretty crafty deceptions. Okay. So, um, so Ephesians uh, 2.10, let's look at verse 17. It, it, the reference is to Christ. Therefore, he had been made like his brethren in all things, his humanity, okay, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Okay. Made like his brethren, the incarnation, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Because Adam was a man, Adam sinned, and therefore a man has to make restitution. Jesus was a man. Okay? Uh, but he was also the God who can cure uh, the imperfection of the fall of Adam. Okay? So, majesty of the incarnation. Notice again, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of people. So it has to be, has to be the God-man. Man failed, man's going to succeed. Uh, in this case, it's not just a man, it's the eternal high priest who is Christ. Uh, he's going to satisfy injustice, if you will, make propitiation for the sins of his people. Necessity of the atonement. Um, let's turn to uh, um, let's turn to uh, Hebrews chapter nine. Kind of going over uh, just quickly some of these verses. Uh, Hebrews 9, 26, I'm going to read 26, 28. Uh, otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, 
Chapter 1 of Murray is the necessity of the atonement. There has to be an atonement by God the Son. It can be no other way. I can't atone for sin. Only, only, only the God-man can do that. Okay. Um, verse 20, 27. And inasmuch as it, as it is appointed for man once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time not to bear sin to those who eagerly await him for salvation. Okay. Notice the phrase, we'll talk about this some when we get into um, uh, the nature of the atonement. He was offered once. Okay. Why just once? Because of his perfection. Uh, that's that's the, I believe, the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church every time it has a mass. They're sacrificing Christ over and over and over again for the sins of the people. Okay, Murray's going to tell us you don't repeat perfection. Okay, If Christ was imperfect, then he's, he's got to die over and over and over again. It wasn't imperfect. He's perfect. You don't repeat perfection. You can't repeat perfection. And so he was offered for the sins of his people one time for all time. Never again to be repeated because he accomplished, let's go back to the time, he accomplished what God the Father gave him to do. Think about that. The atonement, the majesty of it. Okay. Uh, notice, notice the phrase, we're gonna, we'll explore this, but I, I suspect some of you struggle with it because I did. Maybe you don't, but uh, to bear the sins of many. Why doesn't it say all? So for whom did Christ die? I'm sorry? The elect, exactly right. The sins of many. Because the atonement is so majestic in its perfections and its accomplishments that we will study later, that he paid for all of the sins of his church, never again to be repeated. If he died for all the sins of all men, then everyone's going to be saved. Okay. We know that not everyone's going to be saved. So he didn't die for all the sins of all men. He died for all the sins of his church. A lot of, obviously, uh, debate and gnashing of teeth over that, but just, just look at the majesty of the logic of it. Um, so the efficacy of the work of the Son is tied to the person of the Son. The necessity established by the gravity of sin makes necessary the blood of Jesus, who in turn must be the eternal Son of God. Not a Son, but the Son of God. If the exigencies of sin are absolute, and they are, and if it is necessary that sin be removed, and it is, then Christ and nothing else is required. It, there must be an eternal person that's both God and man that's going to go pay the sin debt. Um, 
because it's, it's a necessity arising from the heavenly reality of the eternal justice of God and his own perfection. Perfection has been violated. Only perfection can cure it. It's an essential proposition. Um, It's also necessary from the doctrine of justification. Uh, A righteousness necessary to secure the justification of sinners can only be accomplished by the righteousness of Christ. No other way. This implies the obedience, incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. Okay, let's turn to Galatians 3, verse 21. So if you think about what everything that I'm saying, you either have a high view of Christ as God, or you're in deep trouble. Because only he can pay for the sins of his people. No one else. Galatians 3.21. I'm going to read down through verse 26. If the law then contrary to the promises of God may it never be, for if the law has been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. Okay. So again, the law, you, you can't be saved by the law. Okay? Uh, you know, the, one of the strains of liberalism, uh, old liberalism, is, well, you just, you know, keep the Sermon on the Mount. God's going to save you. Well, who can keep the Sermon on the Mount? Okay? We're all, we've all violated the law of God. Uh, either implicitly or explicitly. Uh, So the law can't save you. The law condemns you, doesn't save. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So in some manner or form, in your testimony as a Christian, uh, you realize you couldn't save yourself, and God's word convicted you. So you need something to save you. Well, you need someone to save you. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ. So... um, that's how we become a son of God through, through faith in Christ and his perfections. Um, and the, uh, the cross uh, demonstrates the supremacy of, of, of the love of God. Let's turn to Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 32. Uh, Paul says, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with us freely give us all things? The all things being contextual with respect to the totality of our redemption. I mean, 
I trust Christ. This doesn't mean He's going to give me a 58 Corvette. So, so I mean, it's a good illustration. There's this big argument is, is all, all. What we, how do we interpret the Scriptures? The Scriptures interpret themselves. We interpret them contextually. What's Romans chapter 8 about? The whole chapter is our salvation from beginning to end, uh, including, uh, uh, including, uh, um, um, the totality of it, uh, in terms of our final absolute redemption when we are glorified at the coming of Christ. So, so God in the Son, He's going to give you everything you need to transit this life into the eternal presence of God. He, he withholds nothing from you. If He gives you everything in His Son, then He's not going to nickel and dime you in everything else. Okay? It's not the way God works. So that's what one of the things that Paul is saying there. Okay? Um, Let's, re- let's look very quickly, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the love of God. Skip down very quickly if you have your finger there to verse 19. We love. Notice the causality of our love. He loved us first. If He didn't love you first, you would never love according to the will of God. It's the majesty of His redemption. He loved you before you were even born. Okay? He loved us first. Okay? That's why we can love. And love, love is an essential. It's an essential. Uh, let, me, let me talk about this concept of love very quickly, um, because uh, uh, it is under attack uh, in many professing churches today. Um, number of weeks ago. Uh, and, and, and I'm using this simply as an illustration. I'm not, you know, my wife is always elbowing me. You know, Phil, lots of people can be saved, and there's other churches, and I, I get all that, but I, I'm, I'm interested in what other churches are doing uh, so that I can be a better witness to people in those churches. But So, so a number of months ago, one of the, one of the largest uh, Methodist churches uh, in Oklahoma, if not the entire United States, uh, defected from their orthodox uh, position on alternative lifestyles by saying we're going to we're going to uh, let these people come into our community, uh, partake of all of our rights and our institutions, including uh, partaking in the Lord's table because of love. We are to love them. So, um, let's think about this for a moment. When we were studying the attributes of God, we had a chapter on God is love. 
But that's not the only chapter we had. We had chapters on God is truth. You cannot segregate any of the aspects of the character of God and thereby sweep everything under that particular uh, rubric, if you will. Yes, God is love, but he's also truth. What is the truth of God? Well, we're going to study that. He saves. And when he saves, he changes. Okay? If you're a son of God and you've had faith in Jesus Christ, it's because he loved you and he's going to change you. One of the aspects of the accomplishments of our great redemption is the doctrine of sanctification. It's not maybe he will change us. If we let him change us, he is going to change us. So all of these alternative lifestyles are coming into the church. I hope they have true faith in Christ. But God doesn't leave you in your sin. If you're a professing Christian, you say, well, Phil, I've come to Christ. And yet you're engaging in some sin as a way of life that you refuse to leave. You you need to rethink your salvation because God doesn't leave you unchanged. Now, we're all still sinners. I grant you that, including me. We all still have the ability to commit grievous sin. Okay. But God doesn't leave us unchanged. Uh, I mean, let's think, for example, of, of David. David committed a couple of grievous sins, did he not? Murder and adultery. Did God say to David, well, David, I love you, it's okay. Tisk tisk, you'll get it at some point. No, he disciplines him. Okay, in a very powerful way. Uh, he loses a son. He has a son. He dies. And, and then warfare comes into his kingdom, threatening him through his, one of his sons, Absalom. Okay. Uh, we also know that David comes under incredible conviction, Psalm 51. So think about what I'm saying. Did God leave David alone? No, he came for him to discipline him as son. Those who are sons of God are going to be disciplined. Okay? And, I mean, there's a warning there. Ladies and gentlemen, we all have the ability to do grievous things. And God has the ability (laughs) to come and discipline. You think about the things that came in that happened to David. Um, So God disciplined sons. Uh, That's love. Love isn't, well, God's going to love me and accept me the way that I am. Thank God that he doesn't do that. Thank God he changes me. And that's exactly what we have in David's life. We have it in Peter's life. Um, Can anyone name for me someone who was a member of the visible church that started out saying they loved God, but uh, fell away and fell into perdition, eternal perdition? Judas, exactly right. Judas, if you will, was a member of the visible church. Okay? He followed Christ. He fell away. 
Does that mean Christ lost him? No, he, uh, I, I mean, he was, he was the son of perdition according to the scriptures. The scriptures foretold, okay? We should learn from that. People come into the church. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether they're truly Christian or not. I can only examine their visible lifestyle. But Judas eventually tips his hand. Uh, and better, you know, the Bible tells us better had that man been, never been born. So, uh, um, now, the other disciples committed sins too. They fled. Peter denied him. But did Jesus come to Peter? <laughs> yeah, he came to Peter and convicted him. Grievously convicted him. You fall into grievous sin, God's going to grievously convict you because he doesn't leave you alone. That's the beauty of redemption accomplished and applied. Okay. We'll study this in, in, uh, in uh, uh, the doctrine of uh, uh, sanctification. Uh, but again, uh, why am I sharing this? Because you can't pick and choose your attributes. You can't pick and choose what Christ did on the cross. You cannot pick and choose what the Spirit's going to do in changing your life. Uh, and, and again, I affirm, He, 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 he does not leave you alone. Uh, he does not leave you unchanged. Um, uh, I share this because uh, I believe that as churches defect from these truths, they sweep people like Judas into the church. Because the moment you begin to lessen the demands of the Scripture and the Gospel and redemption accomplished and applied, you're going to sweep the world into it. Because the world wants to say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian too. Uh, I don't have to worry about that because I'm not the referee. God is. Um, but we have to be careful to guard the truth. So if God is truth and He is, and He gives to each of us, uh, particularly elders in a church, but all of us as church members, to guard the truth, because God is truth. Uh, and the greater reason I share this with you is uh, you need to know what people believe so that you can share the gospel with them properly. And we are, I believe in the doctrine of election. I believe in the doctrine of predestination. But as you know, I don't know who the elect are. God hasn't told me. He didn't send me the Lamb's Book of Life. He says, no, you go into all the world proclaiming the gospel. Uh, I believe one of the greatest, I want to restate this. Uh, uh, I believe one of the greatest mission fields in America today is the professing Christian church who has permitted deception to, to take over. So that's why uh, we're not just learning these things to learn about the nature of our redemption, uh, but also how to be better witnesses. Okay, so I didn't really have time to look at the nature of the atonement, uh, uh, but next time we'll look at 
chapter 2 and maybe chapter 3, the perfection of the atonement, is a little bit uh, easier. Um, uh, when I look at the extent of the atonement, that's the most controversial of them all. For whom did Christ die? So we may slow real down. We may go to slow motion on that one. Look at a number of different verses. Um, but does anyone have any questions on the absolute necessity of the atonement and the absolute necessity of Christ as the God-man? It, 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 I mean, these are essential doctrines. Okay, well, let's, let's, hours uh, gone, so let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for the truth, uh, uh, and we would pray that Thou wouldst help us to be good students of it, the eternal truth of salvation, and help us also to apply it to our lives, that we might live in a way that would glorify uh, the eternal Word, who is truth, our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray, amen.